Welcome to Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast with Elizabeth Crawford, where I dish with trendsetters, tastemakers, and other experts in the food and beverage industry about everything from emerging trends to regulatory pressures to marketing strategies. Today we're rounding out our three-part series looking at the growing success of plant-based products by talking about what challenges are holding back the overall plant-based category and how industry can address them to fuel growth. To talk about this, I'm joined by four leaders in the plant-based product space. With me today are Michelle Simon, Executive Director of the newly formed Plant-Based Foods Association, Eugene Wang, founder of Sophie's Kitchen, a vegan seafood alternative manufacturer, and Bruce Friedrich, the Executive Director of the Good Food Institute and co-trustee of the New Crop Capital, which is a $25 million VC fund that invests in plant-based and cultured products. And finally, we have Greg Stettenpole, co-founder and CEO of Califia Farms. Thanks, everyone, for joining me today. So let's start by hashing out what factors are slowing down the growth of the plant-based products compared to their animal-based counterparts. And then we can brainstorm ways that manufacturers and retailers and advocates can address these challenges to secure sort of a brighter future for the category. Um, and first off, I sort of want to say that there's a lot that's great going on for plant-based products. But um, as we've talked about before, there's sort of, you know, if we're honest, a lot of plant-based alternatives to meat and dairy are sequestered to shadowy corners of the grocery store or have typically been in special sections where only the current dedicated users might know to look. Um, Michelle, when we talked before, you mentioned that one of the goals of the new plant-based trade association is to help expand availability of plant-based products in stores and food service. Can you talk a little bit about how plant-based products currently are or are not showcased and how the Plant-Based Trade Association is working to expand the availability of these products? Sure. Well, um, of course, first and foremost, consumers have to know that, that these products exist and they have to be convinced to purchase them. So, you know, we need to educate retailers and increasingly conventional retailers are interested in natural and organic and plant-based within that category. And so, you know, we're really trying to, first of all, educate just in terms of the opportunity, right, because retailers want to know they're going to make money by including these products on their shelves. And so simply showing them the numbers that we all know about the incredible growth of this industry and what opportunity that, that creates for them. And then, um, and then talking about the best ways to merchandise these products within the store shelves and really thinking about how to make sure that you know, consumers can find them, as you say, that they're not relegated to some corner of the supermarket that only the, the dedicated souls are going to seek out, but rather make sure that consumers can readily find these products and, and are excited by them and can really see the, the benefits that they bring. Um, and also thinking about other channels than just retail. So you mentioned... Food service. I think there's lots of opportunity, and there are some companies that are already um, tapping into that market, like Hampton Creek, like Day of Foods, and I think a lot of other companies um, could be expanding into food service, especially thinking about the college and university market. You know, as we know, the next generation is really interested in shifting to more sustainable, plant-based diet. Then, of course, that's the perfect opportunity to reach them in, in their college campuses. So. You know, there's all kinds of opportunities for growth and really just trying to um, make sure that whoever the decision makers are, whether it's in the retail environment, food service, you know, large chain restaurants, that those people are incorporating these types of foods um, into their store shelves and in their menus. 
Yes, as you sort of talked about, the power of product placement um, is huge. And one of the places that we've really seen this is in the non-dairy beverage category. For years, it seems like shelf-stable non-dairy milks were in strange places, like maybe beside the bread or oddly in the paper goods section. Um, and now they're in the dairy aisle. Greg, can you talk a little bit about this evolution and what it means for the category? Well, uh, you know, it's an evolution for for me as well in that, um, you know, traditionally single-serve beverages and things that were um, kind of coming out of the alternative and um, healthy-minded innovation space were not usually in, in multi-serve um, and not usually back in the dairy aisle. And the dairy aisle for many, many decades really didn't change much. Um, so when we got there, you know, we had to do things differently, so that forced us into different packaging. But I, I think it, there's broader aspects to it than that, and one is just the classic sense that you need to think from a consumer-centric point of view, and you need to think about all the different day parts and the use occasions that people, you know, um, encounter. And so wherever they work, shop, play, you know, they need some kind of solution. Um, so I think companies that look for different packaging formats that address those day parts and usage occasions, that's, that's a fundamental thing for enhancing the availability. Uh, the second thing Michelle touched on, which is really multi-channel availability. And this is where you really encounter the fact that there are still not only food deserts, but more healthy food ghettos still exist all over the place. And food service is a pet peeve because, you know, you usually have captive audiences and even though many of the people in corporate cafeteria that are, you know, um, eating in corporate cafeterias or campuses are younger people who have these plant-based desires and really don't have anywhere close to the selection that they might have in a whole food store. So there's this enormous opportunity for, you know, multi-channel approaches and, of course, Probably the most dramatic opportunity there is the dot-com space because people can order from their mobile device and have it brought to their home sometimes even the same day. So, you know, as, as the millennials and post-millennials get more and more active about just making their own choices, you know, food service is going to have to respond. So that's a big change. Um, and convenience sector is, you know, following quick behind. We have a lot of discussions with companies like 7-Eleven, and, you know, we're getting very good results. So things that used to be just, you know, sugary drinks and salty snacks are starting to see that um, they, they get good velocity off healthier products. And then lastly, there's just the whole changing face of contemporary retail. And this is where we try to tackle this merchandising problem first from a top-to-top -top discussion and try to get with senior management of, of all the biggest retailers and emphasize how great merchandising and calling attention to their commitment to plant-based beverages and plant-based alternatives and healthier brands in general helps them attract millennials. 
Um, and so we try to be creative and offer exciting merchandising solutions and displays to them so that that can help drive the excitement in the stores for them. So we, we really see it as a 360-degree approach, and wherever people are, they aren't the, the people who are demanding this, you know, sort of more flexitarian diet choice, they, you know, they can't be ignored where they work or where they travel. So that's forcing the slower-moving sectors to move along, just like we're seeing the conventional retailers adapt to Whole Foods. You know, one of the things that I think is interesting to consider as we watch these products move sort of for, from the natural section into the more mainstream channels like food service or sea stores like you mentioned is the idea of what's in a name and the power of a familiar term. Eugene, at the pitch slam, one of the attendees asked you why you call your products vegan fish when they're not fish, so instead of using some other completely new term. Can you talk a little bit about how the use of familiar terms to help consumers see the, um, the analogous relationship, I guess, between plant-based animal alternatives and, and their, their counterparts and sort of the extent to which this issue has factored into your uh, experience negotiating retail space for your products? Yeah, you know, uh, this is an age-old problem already. I mean, like um, we, when we were talking about uh, uh, plant-based, uh, dairy uh, alternative. Um, we had the same old problem uh, 20, 30 some years ago when uh, silk uh, first came out that they called themselves uh, soy milk um, and a lot, of, a lot of dairy producers don't want them to use the word milk. And now after so many years, you know, who cares to be honest? You know, as a manufacturer, our point of view, our purpose of, uh, of naming our foods is to making people understand what they're going to use what they're going to do with it, you know. And, and just to make it simple and clear to everyone, I think using the conventional fish name, milk name, or mayonnaise name, which, you know, so um, heavily discussed in the last uh, few months or so uh, about Hampton Creek's um, just mail uh, uh, lawsuit uh, by, you know, these uh, big food manufacturers. I think... Um, the, the, the very key thing in these, um, in these uh, stories is that, you know, the objections are actually coming out mostly from the conventional big uh, food manufacturers and the very small packs of uh, uh, die-hard uh, conventionalists. I believe um, for the, the good and the benefit of the general public, uh, for the new plant-based food businesses, if they are able to use these names in their, in their foods, that would make it a lot easier for people to understand and even taking it into their pantry and, and use it in their, their daily meals. And so that's, why, that's how I think uh, the, the whole world, the whole society, have to have a very open-minded view on, on, on the name of these uh, uh, new products, new foods and so that we can increase uh, the rate of uh, introduction of these uh, plant-based foods into, into the market. And, and that would help drive the sales, you know. So uh, um, that, I think, um, is really, you know, what we should do, we all should, uh, you know, uh, uh, try to do in the future. Awesome. I want to build on that a little bit. Michelle, you and I have definitely talked about 
standards of identity issues as being one of the, the regulatory hurdles or challenges that's facing the plant-based uh, food space. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about this and sort of what other regulatory issues your association sees that need to be addressed in it and how you're tackling them. Mm -hmm. Well, I think of the regulatory challenges and um, sort of legal and political challenges is in two buckets. One is the one that you just identified, which is how companies um, simply want to name their foods in a way that makes sense for them, makes sense for the consumer, um, and yet our, our FDA and in many states, state laws are um, woefully behind the times when it comes to, you know, really innovative products that are kind of pushing the envelope and want to be able to use words that consumers recognize and are familiar with and do it in a way that is, you know, obviously not deceptive. Most companies are very proud <laughs> of the fact that they're not containing, um, you know, any uh, animal products. And so, you know, this was actually the, the original driver, the motivator for forming the Plant-Based Food Association was this recognition uh, that companies were facing these types of challenges. So, you know, I think step one is to actually come up with some uniform ways of, of describing the various um, sort of subsectors. So, you know, we're talking about whether it's seafood or meats or cheeses. I think it really is incumbent on this industry to create some um, uniformity and, you know, again, perhaps through consumer surveys, get to the bottom of what are the best phrases to use that consumers will understand. And then we can um, look to how to, you know, um, go into the regulatory arena to make the changes that we want to see. Because right now we have this crazy situation of, like, just take cheeses as an example. I mean, I did a <laughs> informal survey of maybe 10 different um, mostly nut-based cheese products, and I'm not kidding. Every single one uses a different word. A lot of them, you know, use misspellings, which I think is, you know, really silly. For a company to have to misspell a word in order to circumvent FDA regulations is not a good business practice, right? Not even, I think, that smart from a marketing perspective. So, you know, that's why we really need um, a trade group to step in and, you know, gather input from its members, from, you know, the industry at large to to see what can we do to really create some more logical ways of, of naming these foods that, that resonate with consumers and that can make sense, that we can convince the regulators to, to go along with. So that's um, definitely part of our agenda. The other big bucket of um, you know, regulatory challenges that I see are sort of macroeconomic. So, you know, thinking about um, one of the real disadvantages that these foods have is to be able to compete in the marketplace on price. So, you know, we've talked a lot about how great tasting these foods are, and of course they are, and all the wonderful attributes they, they bring to the consumer that con is concerned about their health or the environment. But the truth of the matter is, in most cases, these foods do cost more than their animal counterparts, and that's in large part due to the um, decades of economic advantages that the um, meat, egg, and dairy industries have won um, through their very hard lobbying work in the halls of Congress. And so, you know, there's a lot of that that is very hard to undo, <laughs> admittedly, but I do want to start at least by educating members of Congress about the ways that our companies, obviously, that have, you know, a lot of advantages when, you know, it comes to trying to solve this problem of overproduction of animal products destroying the planet, 
these are companies that are really providing solutions to that problem and yet in many ways are at an economic disadvantage. So how can we fix that? That is um, what keeps me up at night. <laughs> <laughs> and sort of building on that, the other side of economics is funding. So making sure that these companies have, these young companies have the money that they need to really compete against some of these legacy brands and that their animal counterparts. And Bruce, this is a space where you're really active. Can you talk a little bit about how your VC fund and the Good Food Institute are helping to bring together innovators and investors and really make these products a reality? Yeah, absolutely, Elizabeth. Thank you. Um, so first, we're focused on creating a pipeline of food scientists, entrepreneurs, synthetic biologists, tissue engineers, people who might otherwise have been going into another space and convincing them that they can both do a lot of good in the world and do well for themselves by using their talents on behalf of plant-based and cultured alternatives to meat, dairy, and eggs. And we're reaching out to these people through events at top schools for entrepreneurship, uh, food science, synthetic biology, and so on. And as a part of that, we are actively starting companies by pairing entrepreneurs and scientists. So. We have three companies actively underway, um, as well as others that we're, we're actively recruiting for. Second, we're reaching out to foundations, governments, corporations, um, including the meat industry itself, um, as well as foundations to increase support for these technologies. So really any entity that is concerned about climate change or global health or the sustainability question of how we're going to feed 9 billion people by 2050, these entities should be helping to ensure that the plant-based and cultured categories are as successful as possible. And then a third thing that we're doing is through New Crop Capital, which is a venture capital fund um, of which I'm co-trustee, we're investing $5 million a year in the companies that we think are going to be most transformative of these sectors. And we're also reaching out to other investors that are interested in improving the world to get them involved in some of these companies that are making the best and the most innovative plant-based and cultured alternatives to conventional, which is to say animal-based, meat, dairy, and eggs. Great. Well, it does definitely sound like, based on everything we've heard, that there's a lot going on in this space. And I, for one, am really excited to see how it evolves and watch some of these new companies come up. Um, and I really want to thank all of you for sharing your thoughts and your advice on how to make plant-based products category stronger in the future and really open the door for companies. You know, while this wraps up our three-part series on the plant-based products, please tune in again for the future to find out more about other emerging trends, pressing issues, and marketing strategies. Until next time, I'm Elizabeth Crawford, signing off for Food Navigator USA.